Hello, everybody. Welcome back. I hope you are all doing well. I am Crystalina May, the witchy historian, and today we are going to have a little chat about Thomas Aquinas. But before we get started, I wanted to thank all of you for sticking with me through all of the stress and absolute chaos of this year thus far. Um, hopefully things will be calming down now um, and I will be able to maintain my original schedule of releasing an episode every other Thursday for y'all. At least that is the goal. Um, before we get started, I do want to share the witchy calendar of the day. Um, I was planning on dropping this today, which is Thursday, um, but because it is now 1119, I do not think it's going to get out today. So I'm going to do the calendar for Friday, July 14th. So for Friday, uh, which is Bastille Day in France and also Cow Appreciation Day, uh, we have Pluto, Saturn, and Neptune still in retrograde, and it is still cancer season. All of the fields are going on up in here. Um, and today we have an animal, uh, and we are talking about the ox, which is the second animal of the Chinese zodiac. The ox's good luck numbers are one and four. Lucky colors are white yellow and green, and the lucky flowers are the tulip and the, the peach blossom, excuse me, and directions associated with the ox are north and south. The personality traits of the ox are diligence, dependability, strength, determination, idealism, ambition, patience, conservatism, and earnestness. Now, when I say conservatism, I do not mean political affiliation. I mean uh, conservatism in the way that it's uh, remaining the way that things are or being very traditional. And these kind of folks can also be very stoic, stubborn, bullheaded, obstinate, and opinionated. And of course, these are just tendencies, common traits. They do not define you as a person. Um, but the years of the ox are 2033, 2021, 2009, 1997, 1890, no, 1985. Wow. <laughs> uh, 1973-1961-1949-19. 37. Those are the years of the ox. And if any of those are your year of birth, you are an ox. And those are some things about you. But now on to the show. I'm going to give you all a fair warning. This is a thick boy. It might end up being a two-parter. We'll see how long this takes me to get through. <laughs> so Thomas Aquinas was born somewhere between 1224 and 1226. The most commonly accepted date is in January of 1225. His father was Count Landolf of 
Rokasaka, sorry, in the kingdom of Naples, which is, or I should say the region of Naples, which is in modern day Italy. Uh, so despite his title, Landolf was actually the Count of Aquino, which is where the name Aquinas comes from back then, especially in uh, when you're dealing with nobility or people who are related to nobility. Um, last names were often linked to the area or region that they were from. So um, Thomas's mother, her name was Theodora. Uh, she was the Countess of Tiano. Thomas was the youngest son of the couple. And at this time, um, or during this time, it was really common for younger siblings, especially boys, to be committed to the church at a young age. In some cases, this was to avoid having to feed too many mouths and to protect a struggling family from the poorhouse. But in others, which is the most likely in Thomas's case here, this was done in order to avoid having to split up the nobility or the titled inheritance among too many sons. And this allowed one or two of the sons to carry on the family titles while simultaneously giving the titled family a connection in the church, which could strengthen their political and social power. So Thomas's uncle was an abbot at the monastery at Monte Cassino, but the conflict between Emperor Frederick II and Pope Gregory IX, um, there was some religious and political tensions there. This created issues at the Abbey. So Thomas was moved to Frederick's University in Naples. Um, his family was very loyal to Emperor Frederick II. So while he was here, he was educated on some of the great philosophers, including Aristotle, and was introduced to the Dominican order, which he decided to join at the age of 19. His family, though, were traditionally Benedictine, so they tried to prevent this. Um, but when the Dominicans tried, and I'm not talking about the Dominican Republic, I'm talking about the the Dominican order of, of monks, to be very, very clear. <laughs> they tried to move Thomas to Rome and then away to Paris. So while they were trying to sneak him away so that he could join the order, his family intercepted and under his mother's um, orders, his brothers kidnapped him and brought him back to the family castle. And he was imprisoned there for a year. Uh, legend has it that at one point, two of his brothers hired a prostitute in order to seduce him, which was an attempt to kind of dissuade him from joining the Dominican order, because if he um, did not honor his vows of chastity, he wouldn't have been able to join uh, the order. But Thomas allegedly chased her off with a burning log and then used it to scorch the shape of a cross in the wall. In his official canonization record, it is stated that he had dreams and visions of angels after this. 
um, and they graced him with the gift of perfect chastity by Christ. So he wore a special girdle to symbolize this. And upon his death, this girdle was gifted to the monastery of Vercelli in Piedmont, and then was later moved to um, a church in Turin. So Thomas's mother finally takes mercy on him, realizes how devout and how devoted he is to this path. And she arranges for him to escape through his window under the cover of night, which would be much less damaging to the family reputation and their connections than if they had openly kind of just given him over to the Dominicans. So Thomas travels to Rome, um, over eventually gets escapes he travels to rome and here is where he meets with the master general of the dominican order so you might be wondering why the benedictine count and countess fought so hard against their son joining the dominican order so the benedictine monks and that line of catholicism or christianity as it was known at the time were considered kind of the OG, the original teachers and religious scholars of the Christian church. They were the originators of many of the more intense rituals of the Orthodox Catholic church. And they took great pride in the rituals and the kind of the pomp and circumstance of their churches. But they also embraced the autonomy of each one of the church houses and abbeys across Europe. The Dominicans, on the other hand, they felt that conformity and correct Christianity could not possibly be practiced properly when each church had a separate group of leadership who each interpreted the Pope's word and religious texts differently. So the Dominicans created a structure of provinces that each answered to a priest who answered directly to the master general. They also traveled to preach. The master general told them when and where to go. And finally, and this is the biggest thing that the Dominican order was known for, the fancy fixings of the Orthodox church were very severely frowned upon by the Dominicans. They believed in the message of evangelical poverty and that living a life of bare minimum made them more holy and less corruptible than their Benedictine counterparts. Since many Benedictine monks were members of noble or aristocratic families, the Dominican concerns are really kind of understandable in this context. And since Thomas's move into the Dominicans would put him in a, t in a position to deny his family help for their aristocratic aims, they obviously could not allow him to do that without putting up some kind of a fight. So for them, it was less about a religious thing and more about a sociopolitical thing and being able to maintain some type of power in this situation and to save face um, when he did go over to the Dominicans. So this is all said and done now. And in 1248, 
Thomas is sent by the Dominican order to the University of Paris to study under the Dominican um, scholar Albertus Magnus, who he later followed to university at Cologne and turned down an offer from the Pope who wanted to appoint him abbot of Monte Cassino as a Dominican, which would have been completely unheard of. And again, you can see the family connection there because that's where his uncle had been the abbot. And uh, the Pope gives him this offer of an appointment, but he decided he wanted to follow his mentor. And so he turned down that offer. So while at Cologne, Thomas taught the Old Testament as an assistant professor, and he also taught some writings on Isaiah, Jeremiah, and on the Book of Lamentations. He later returned to Paris to receive a master's degree in theology, and upon graduation was appointed Regent Master of Theology there. So during his tenure as a student and then as a professor at Paris, he wrote um, the, his works on being and essence and against those who assail the worship of God and religion, among others. Um, and these writings were some of the most influential tomes of Dominican philosophy. And these really laid the foundation for the, the Dominican order and later the Christian church and their position on heresies and witchcraft. Thomas continued writing after his regency ended, and he spent the next nine years fulfilling teaching and preaching duties as he was assigned by the Dominican Master General. He also produced special commissions for Pope Urban IV, including the liturgy for the new feast of Corpus Christi. And when Pope Clement IV was elected, he summoned Thomas to serve as the Popal Theologian. And that same year, Thomas was also ordered by the Dominicans to teach at the Roman convent of Santa Sabina. So the Dominicans very swiftly took over that convent and they used it as their official teaching facility. And it was while that he was fulfilling these duties there that Thomas began writing his most famous work, which is called Summa Theologiae. It was really common practice to engage in public debate about philosophical and theological issues. And Thomas did this um, frequently. And this tradition plays into the events of the Protestant Reformation that is attributed to Martin Luther 200 years later. In 1269, Thomas was sent back to Paris for a second regency, so supposedly in response to a rise in radical Aristotelianism. So these are people who were radically in favor of the teachings of Aristotle. So during his time there, he wrote two works disparaging these philosophical errors or what he considered to be errors, along with his completion of the second part of Summa Theologiae. This round in Paris kind of brought some trouble with a few well-known Franciscans of the Franciscan order um, who also taught they were similar to the Dominicans and that they believed in showing, demonstrating piety by 
remaining poor and not holding on to a lot of money by doing charity, things like that. But the Franciscans had some really intense dogmatic and doctrinal differences with the, with the Dominicans. And they accused Thomas of encouraging the, this, this particular radicalism that he was actually trying to correct. This really disturbed him very deeply and created a lot of tension that led Thomas to conduct a series of disputations in his last three years at Paris, which ended in 1272 when he took a leave from Paris in order to establish a Dominican university in Naples, and he was able to staff that university to his liking. He began writing the third part of Summa and apparently gained a reputation during this time for his alleged ability to levitate while in prayer. In December of 1273, while celebrating Mass, Thomas experienced an unusually long ecstasy. Um, we might today call these um, visions or ecstatic visions, but this ecstasy actually forced him to halt his work on Summa, and he ended up taking to his bed for an extended period of time. Um, but his rest period was interrupted when Pope Gregory X, there's a lot of popes going on here, <laughs> Pope Gregory X summoned Thomas to the Second Council of Lyon, which was supposed to take place in May of 1274. And he was supposed to present his works concerning the Greeks at this council. But on his way, Thomas was struck in the head by a fallen tree's branch and was brought to a Monte Cassino to recover. After resting, Thomas reconvened his trip to the council, only to be forced to stop at the Sister Cistercian Fossa Nova Abbey, where the monks there nursed him for several days until he received his last rites. And he died on March 7th at Fossanova while giving commentary on the Song of Songs. And I could not find details of this, if he was actually in sermon or if he was in a closed room in his bed with other scholars. I couldn't find any other details on that. But he was supposedly giving commentary on the Song of Songs, otherwise known as the Song of Solomon, um, when he died. Three years after his death, Thomas's reputation was put to the test when Etienne Tempier um, issued an extensive condemnation against Thomas. But despite this kind of bump in the road, Thomas was portrayed in Dante's Divine Comedy as a glorified soul, and a few of Dante's contemporaries agreed with Dante's assertion that Thomas had died of poisoning. Um, despite these stories, however, this has not been verified by any historical accounts or in historical sources, but Thomas Aquinas's name lasted into infamy and his unique brand of theology gained traction again. 
In 1567, Pope Pius V named Thomas a doctor of the church and granted him a feast, which was ranked among the four great Latin fathers, which are Ambrose, Augustine of Hippo, um, Jerome, and Gregory. So now there's a fifth one, which would be the Feast of Thomas. Um, Thomas's Summa was actually placed on the altar at the Council of Trent next to the Bible. And in 1879, Pope Leo XIII called Thomas's theology a definitive exposition of Catholic doctrine. And many of those teachings are still included in clerical teaching and sermons today. Thomas Aquinas was canonized as the patron saint of all Catholic educational establishments in 1880, although he had been officially canonized in 1323 by Pope John XXII. His remains were held at the Church of the Jacobins in Toulouse until 1789, when they were moved to the Basilica of St. Cernin until um, they were returned back to Toulouse in 1974. So, that's his biography. One of the things that made Thomas Aquinas unique was that he married philosophy and theology together to create his worldview and his teachings. But he actually called other contemporary philosophers pagans, regardless of their faith, because he saw their use of reason and logic to be counterintuitive to what he defined as Christian wisdom. He does cite Aristotle in his Summa, but he modified it wherever he deemed necessary um, so that it would better align with his Christian beliefs. So despite him being well-educated in philosophy and uh, in reason and logic, he very frequently corrected and shifted what that meant in order to fit his faith instead of changing his worldview to fit reason and logic. So Thomas also taught that Christians had an obligation to feed and clothe the poor, but despite his claims of believing in distributive justice, which is a very strange and complicated subject, he did not seem to teach that equality was something that was attainable or even desirable. He was heavily in favor of the death penalty, and many of his beliefs regarding ethics contributed to the creation of what we would consider now early modern Christian ethics, which allowed for slavery, imperialism, and the doctrine of discovery, which I will go into further detail when we get further down the timeline. In his treatise on law, Thomas distinguishes between eternal, natural, human, and divine law. These are four separate types of law. These categories and Thomas's teachings heavily influenced Catholic teachings on mortal and venial sin, and many of his ideas contributed to the philosophy of capitalism, including the concept of a just price 
based on cost of production plus a profit, although he did argue against inflating prices due to just increased demand. Thomas's political ideas heavily influenced conservative libertarian theory, especially the idea of absolute individual autonomy in which the state cannot interfere, even when this includes oppression and cruelty. He supported a monarchy as the best form of government, although he does caveat this by recognizing that a virtuous king made for the best situation. Despite his claim that slavery was not the natural state of man, Thomas supported slavery that allowed some autonomy to the enslaved person or in his definition, as long as there is a perceived benefit to both the enslaved and the master, he condoned and even encouraged slavery. Thomas's theology included the idea that truth is only known through a combination of rationality and supernatural revelation, claiming that no logic can be truth until it is confirmed by a divine being. He also believed in the doctrine of just war, in which war that occurred for a good and just purpose was waged by a properly instituted authority, aka the state, and in which peace was the ultimate goal, was always just and good. While this philosophy has been refined over the centuries, this doctrine is still central to how many military complexes teach rules of engagement, despite the fact that the definitions of these conditions are incredibly subjective. He defines sin as anything contradictory to the eternal law, which again is open to interpretation and leaves room for harm to humans and other beings. But the most important part of Thomas's story is his teachings on the treatment of heretics. The Dominicans were founded with the goal, among others, to convert the Albigensians, the Waldensians, and other heretical factions. So we've talked about the Albigensians and the Waldensians before. In Summa, Thomas wrote that heretics quote, deserve not only to be separated from the church by excommunication, but also to be severed from the world by death, end quote. He recommended that the church attempt to convert the heretic first, of course, but then they were to be handed over to the secular authorities who would dole out the death penalty as they saw fit. It's also important to note here that a wide variety of offenses fell under the umbrella of heresy, including saying something that the ruling monarch didn't like. After all, the monarch was God's appointed ruler of the state and was usually personally blessed by the Pope himself. Angering the monarch was the equivalent to angering God, and if one raised a king's hackles well and good enough, that could bring a charge of heresy, and in effect, the death penalty. 
In fact, any kind of perceived rebellion or disrespect to a monarch could be charged as heresy if the king was petty enough. And in some cases, one didn't even have to address or disparage the king directly to find oneself labeled a heretic. Being a noble had its perks, including being able to seize the property of criminals. So while Thomas didn't create capital punishment or heresy himself, he did directly encourage the brutal enforcement of it. And as his teaching became so essential to the formation of Christian doctrine, they became a key part of the way the witch trials were executed in subsequent centuries. I would like to make a note that Thomas Aquinas argued in favor of toleration of Jews and their religious rights, and he was against forced baptism of their children. As we've previously mentioned, church doctrine held that witchcraft was not real, and anyone claiming to do it was deluded. Thomas, however, taught that only God can perform miracles, create, and transform. Angels and demons are spiritual substances that may also do wonderful things, but they are not miracles and merely use natural things as instruments. Any efficacy of magicians does not come from from the power of words or celestial bodies or special figures or sympathetic magic, but by bidding. And demons are intellective substances who were created good and have chosen to be bad. And it is these who are bid in these types of magic. If there is some transformation that could not occur in nature, it is either the demon working on human imagination or arranging a fake. This doctrine and these teachings contribute to the later emerging doctrine that supports a belief in the real power of witches. And his works are cited directly in the Malleus Maleficarum or the Hammer of Witches, which was written by Heinrich Kramer and Jacob Springer in 1486. Thomas Aquinas was one of the most cited sources by witch hunters and their supporters. So that is the story of Thomas Aquinas and how he played a role in the legal and religious history of the witchcraft trials. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. I apparently broke, breezed, breezed, bros, (laughs) breezed through that really quickly. (laughs) Not bad for six pages. Um, But yeah, thanks for joining me and uh, stay tuned for my next witchy episode, which I am planning on dropping on July 27th. If you would like to stay updated on upcoming episodes, you can follow me on TikTok at The Witchy Historian. Um, I'm trying to stay on top of that and and keep those updated a little bit more frequently Um, on Instagram at witchy historian or on facebook at the witchy historian pod listeners or facebook.com slash the witchy historian if you would like to support the show 
You can find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash the witchy historian. Um, there are three different tiers to choose from. I try to keep it affordable for everybody and each one gets a little something, something for me. Um, I have not launched all of the perks for that yet, but I am slowly working on that. So you can hop on over to any of my socials to follow along for updates on that as I launch each thing. You can also send me an email at thewitchyhistorian at gmail.com. You can either send me a story about your experience as a witch, a pagan, a Christian, an aspiring historian. Um, you can request a topic or you can even just say hi and I will do my best to reply in a timely manner. Um, but yeah, thanks again for joining me this evening. Hopefully for you, it's not evening. <laughs> And I hope that you all have a great couple of weeks and I will chat at you again soon. Thanks so much. Bye.